America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation, a great day, despite the fact that there is an alarming story of a, an interaction between a Russian fighter jet and a U.S. Air Force drone. The drone was downed over the Black Sea. This is in international waters. It is not part of Russia's territory. A Russian fighter jet forced down a U.S. Air Force drone over the Black Sea today after damaging the propeller of the American MQ-9 Reaper drone, according to a U.S. official familiar with the incident. The uh, Reaper drone and two Su-27 flanker jets were operating over international waters over the Black Sea when one of the Russian jets intentionally flew in front of and dumped fuel in front of the unmanned drone, according to the official. Now, this idea of dumping fuel, the uh, U.S. spokespeople from the Pentagon have said that was unprofessional. Well, it's, it's more than unprofessional. It's, it's hostile and it's destructive and it's aggressive. One of the jets then damaged the propeller of the Reaper, which is mounted on the rear of the drone. The official said the damage to the propeller forced the U.S. to bring down the Reaper in international waters in the Black Sea. They are working on recovering it or whatever is left of this particular drone. Uh, this is the Pentagon press secretary, Pat Ryder, uh, giving the latest update. And all of this has just happened on the U.S. surveillance drone downed by the Russians. This is clip 11. First of all, um, I would like to highlight U.S. European Command's statement released earlier today confirming that two Russian Su-27 aircraft conducted unsafe and unprofessional, inter and unprofessional intercept uh, with a U.S. Air Force intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance unmanned MQ-9 aircraft that was operating within international airspace over the Black Sea today. Uh, to recap, at approximately 7.03 a.m. Central European time, one of the Russian Su-27 aircraft struck the propeller of the MQ-9, causing U.S. forces to have to bring the MQ-9 down in international waters. Several times before the collision, the Su-27s dumped fuel on and flew in front of the MQ-9 in a reckless and unprofessional manner. This incident demonstrates a lack of competence in addition to being unsafe and unprofessional. U.S. Air Forces in Europe, Air Forces Africa, routinely fly aircraft throughout Europe over sovereign territory and throughout international airspace in coordination with applicable host nation and international laws. In order to bolster collective European defense and security, these missions support allied partner and U.S. national objectives. As the U.S. Air Forces in Europe, Air Forces Africa commander emphasized in European Command Statement, quote, U.S. and allied aircraft will continue to operate in international airspace, and we call on the Russians to con conduct themselves professionally and safely. That emphasis on professionally um, is obviously very deliberate. I think he mentioned that term four times. But uh, this is uh, obviously um, a matter of some concern for people who uh, worry, and that's most Americans, I think, that the war in Ukraine could lead to a much more serious war and even some kind of nuclear exchange, God forbid. 
We will be talking about that because for the first time there has been a fairly clear statement by Ron DeSantis, a presumed candidate for president. He was responding to a questionnaire from Tucker Carlson, and he responded with uh, what to me was a surprising statement that I don't think will help him politically at all, but it, it makes the case that no, Ukraine is not a vital U.S. interest. Most of the other Republicans running for president, not including President Trump, but Tim Scott and uh, Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo, of course, and Mike Pence, uh, disagree with uh, that latest statement by Governor DeSantis. We will get to that. In fact, today, people sometimes divide the issues facing America into three. Uh, The three issues, a general foreign policy issue, we're going to be talking about that first hour. The second issue is, of course, the economy, uh, particularly with the bank collapses and the uncertainty and the back and forth on the future of the economy and inflation, the economic issue. We're going to be talking to Peter Coy of the New York Times on what the immediate future holds and what the long-term future holds in terms of what is going on with the U.S. economy and the prospect of another sort of economic collapse like 2008. And then finally, there is what people call the social issue or the cultural issue. And there is a terrific piece by David Geary, who is a very distinguished professor at University of Missouri, about the rise of father absence, more and more children being raised without a dad, and what that is doing to the country. And it's not good. And what we can do about it, both as individuals keep our families together if we possibly can, and uh, what we can do about it in terms of policy. That will be our third hour today. Um, Okay, first of all, this uh, statement by uh, Ron DeSantis, which, uh, like almost everything else he has said recently, has uh, created all sorts of controversy with President Trump. The way that this is covered in in CBS News, and they cover all of the candidates and uh, the position that they're taking. The headline, Ron DeSantis says U.S. support for Ukraine in war, not a vital national interest. Why did you have to say that, Governor? I, I mean, really? Really? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who was widely expected to seek the GOP presidential nomination in 2024, said Monday, that's yesterday, that continued support from the United States for Ukraine as it defends itself from Russia's invasion is not a vital national interest. In his uh, statement, which was in response to a question from the Tucker Carlson show to all of the leading candidates, he said, while the U.S. has many vital national interests, securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness within our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. That's uh, the statement he made to Fox News. Carlson had sent six questions to potential GOP presidential candidates about the war in Ukraine, and those questions went to Trump, DeSantis, Mike Pence, uh, tech entrepreneur Vivek 
Ramaswamy. I don't know why his campaign is getting serious attention, but he's announced, and it is, uh, South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. They all answered the questionnaire. Several, including former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, did not respond. And former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley released her answers publicly uh, today. Uh, Trump told Carlson that opposing Russia and Ukraine is in Europe's strategic interest, but not for the U.S. He also repeated his claim that Russian President Vladimir Putin would never have invaded Ukraine if Trump were still president. When asked if there is a uh, limit to funding and materiel he would send to Ukraine, Trump said it would, quote, strongly depend on my meeting with President Putin and Russia. Okay. Um, he also called for European countries to boost their support and said he would tell Ukraine that there will be little more money coming from us unless Russia continues to prosecute the war. What do you mean, unless? What do you think the Russians are doing now with the invasion that they've launched and the, the fighting and losing a thousand casualties a day at Bakhmut? We'll be right back on the Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. On the Michael Medved Show, look, I, I don't have any hesitation expressing my point of view, of course Ukraine is a vital national interest to the United States. How do we know? What would happen if we lost the war? If what happened in Ukraine repeats what happened about seizing part of Ukraine, Crimea, which is you seize Crimea, you occupy it, uh, you make it part of Russia, take it away from Ukraine, and nobody does a damn thing. Was that handled well? I, I think it was handled horribly by the Obama administration. And the, the truth of the matter is that the United States has an interest in protecting independent members of the United Nations and certainly countries affiliated with the West and certainly the 30 countries that are part of NATO protecting those countries against aggression, just as we do with Taiwan. And when people talk about China and vital national interests, you'll notice that uh, DeSantis in his enumeration of vital national interests didn't mention anything about defending Taiwan. He mentioned uh, about countering the Chinese Communist Party. But the Chinese Communist Party has fewer nukes and has been far more responsible, frankly, than Russia under Vladimir Putin. And the, uh, so the CBS story goes through um, the, uh, the, the point of view on Ukraine of uh, the other candidates for president in addition to uh, assuming that Ron DeSantis will become one. Um, concerning President Trump, as we said, 
He has also called for European countries to boost their support and said he would tell Ukraine, quote, that there will be little more money coming from us unless Russia continues to prosecute the war. Uh, but Russia is clearly continuing to prosecute the war and is making it very clear that they will. And the problem is, as we found out, you can't get weapons to Ukraine at the snap of the fingers. Especially when you're dealing with very high-tech weapons that they have to be trained and prepared to use. And like some of the fighter jets that they need. In an interview on Fox News, uh, actually it was um, on Sean Hannity's radio show. Trump said he would have negotiated a deal for Russia to take over areas of Ukraine. In other words, what he is saying is that I will defy what thousands of Ukrainian idealists and, and young men and patriots and young women and, and, and what, what Ukraine have given their lives for, which is to protect the integrity and the sovereignty of their country. But other prospective GOP presidential candidates, report CBS News, have called for President Biden to do more to help Ukraine fight Putin, exposing a rift within the party ahead of the next election. Former Vice President Mike Pence, God bless him, said last month that the U.S. and its allies need to accelerate the pace of military provisions for Ukraine until it defeats Russia. Okay, Mike Pence is right. And, and by the way, uh, Trump today uh, blamed Mike Pence for January 6th. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Mike Pence, well, they, he had to listen to a crowd chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. He had to try to protect himself and his staff from a rampaging mob. But he's the one who's really to blame for January 6th. Uh, what happened to the uh, beautiful friendship between Trump and Pence? Well, no more. Um, the um, Mike Pence said this in a, a speech. Um, While some in my party have taken a somewhat different view, let me be clear. There can be no room in the leadership of the Republican Party for apologists for Putin. Can we have an amen? Can we hear an amen to that for Mike Pence? There can only be room for champions of freedom. That's what he said in a speech delivered to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the launch of the Russian invasion. The fastest path to peace is to help Ukraine win the war. Nikki Haley who served as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under Trump and launched her campaign last month, has warned a Russian victory would have global implications. This is a war about freedom, she said, and it is a war we have to win. She said that at a town hall in Urbandale, Iowa last month. If we lose this fight for freedom, Russia has said Poland and the Baltics are next, and then we've got a world war. In response to uh, Tucker Carlson's questionnaire, she said, opposing Russia and Ukraine is a vital American strategic interest, and the nation is far better off with a Ukrainian victory than a Russian victory, including avoiding a wider war. In other words, 
think about what a Russian victory would mean. And uh, again, when you go back and you look at the history of the lead into World War II, when Germany violated the Versailles Treaty and occupied the Rhineland, and this is before they invaded Poland, it was before they seized Czechoslovakia, but it was a very big signal that said, we'll, we'll do what we want to do, even if it violates international agreements. And Russia is a signatory to an international agreement that was done in Budapest by then-President Yeltsin and then-President Clinton uh, and uh, by the Ukrainian president at the time to respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And the important thing about that agreement, that Budapest agreement, was that it was because of that that Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. Yes, Ukraine had nuclear weapons that were part of Ukraine and part in, in their territory when it was still part of Russia. In response to um, uh, Carlson's questionnaire again, Haley wrote, if Russia wins, there is no reason to believe it will stop at Ukraine. And if Russia wins, then its closest allies, China and Iran, will become more aggressive. But she pushed back against sending cash or blank checks to Ukraine, as well as deploying U.S. troops to respond to the conflict. No one is in favor of U.S. troops to respond to the conflict, and the courage and intrepid nature of the Ukrainian forces and President Zelensky have made that unnecessary, in fact, unthinkable. Uh, along with our allies in Europe and elsewhere, Nikki Haley said, we should provide conventional weapons that enable Ukraine to effectively stop the Russian invasion and the occupation of their land. Tim Scott also had a supportive statement for Ukraine. So what about this division and the future of American foreign policy? And what's going on with Iran and Israel's red line? We'll talk about that with Ilan Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council. Coming up. Medved show. Uh, just a few days ago, the uh, reports were that uh, Russia had had the worst day of the war so far in terms of their losses. 1,090 Russians killed in action. Now, those are numbers that are like civil war battles here in the United States. I mean, it's devastating. And so what does the future bring for Ukraine? And what about the future in the Middle East with a very controversial government in power in Israel? Uh, is Israel really approaching a red line as Iran's nuclear dreams seem to be near fulfillment? To talk about all of that and to help keep us up to date, let me welcome back to the show Ilan Berman, who is Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council. He has a deep background uh, educating... Uh, American military and intelligence uh, services on the uh, 
the the deeper background of the Middle East and uh, Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, Ilan, first of all, if you you I'm sure have digested uh, Governor DeSantis's statement uh, yesterday that uh, Ukraine and the war in Ukraine is not a vital national interest of the United States. Sure. No. <laughs> yeah, of, of course I have. And I saw it. It's, uh, I think on the surface it's very dismaying. Um, but I, I was sort of dismayed by um, m- maybe a, a slightly different reason than most people, because I am thoroughly convinced that the um, sort of the drift away from support for Ukraine, the drift away uh, or the drift towards uh, sort of the, this uh, pressure for normalization for some sort of compromise comes from a profound misunderstanding of what the Russians are actually doing. Because, you know, uh, like you started the segment, uh, the, the Russians are, are failing on virtually every metric uh, of uh, military conquest. Uh, you know, they're territorially, they're essentially standing still. They've lost uh, scores of uh, soldiers, and they're losing scores of soldiers on a daily basis. The Ukrainian estimate is that the Russians have lost something like 150,000 troops uh, over the last year. Uh, which is 10 times the number that the Soviet Union lost during its decade-long occupation of Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. Uh, You have this exodus of uh, Western companies that are sort of migrating away from Russia in a way that's going to hobble the uh, national economy over the long term. And, And so, you know, Everything that Putin is doing and the fact that he's persisting in this misadventure is really, uh, you know, I think striking and it's estranged to a lot of people. And so there's a chance, uh, there, there's a sense uh, and a temptation to say, well, you know, this is going to be over soon. We should just push for a compromise. But if you look at everything that the Russians are saying, um, what you see is that, you know, Vladimir Putin isn't just fighting to conquer Ukraine, he's fighting a future in which. Russia's international status is diminished, in which the West is stronger, in which uh, vassal previously uh, countries that were previously vassal states like Ukraine are uh, sort of looking to the West for guidance and, and for sort of ideological support. So he's really fighting the future. And that's why for the Russians, the stakes are so high. And frankly, that's why the stakes uh, for us should be so high as well. And uh, again, uh you you would say that uh, obviously the the right argument is that just as Taiwan and uh, security for American allies there is a vital national interest, uh, Ukraine is a vital national interest. I no, I, I absolutely am convinced that it is, and I I think it is for a very practical reason. Um, the the conflict that we see between Russia and Ukraine now. Uh, depending on how we act, will not stop in Ukraine. The settled pattern of Russian behavior is to try to chop off a piece of uh, sort of, you know, the, the rump body of Europe to digest it and then to come back for seconds or to come back for thirds. And it's been doing that for a quarter of a century. And so what you see in Ukraine right now is really a litmus test of Western resolve. Is there going to be a moment when you have a country like Ukraine that's willing to band together um, and uh, stand athwart Russian uh, aggression, whether you back them and prevent Russia from moving further or whether you abandon them and set the table for future provocations, both from Russia and also from countries like China that are watching this conflict closely. I, I think you, you also heard a comment by President Trump on the radio where he said that had he been president, 
he would have offered Putin, he said, certain sections of Ukraine for Putin to take over in order to settle the what uh, DeSantis now is called a territorial dispute. How, how would that have worked out? <laughs> right. Well, not well, and certainly not well, first and foremost, for the Ukrainians, um, because uh, obviously this would be sort of the geopolitical equivalent of throwing them under the bus. Well, it's a but geopolitical it, equivalent of handling Czechoslovakia to the Fuhrer. No, exactly. And but but the problem is here is it's all a question of whether we would realistically legitimately think that Vladimir Putin's territorial appetites would be sated with just a small chunk of Ukraine. I don't know anybody who has studied this issue seriously that thinks that the Russians are going to be content with just a small chunk of Ukraine when you hear a rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin that uh, sort of negates Ukraine's nationhood that talks about the fact that Ukraine needs to be pacified, needs to be denazified. What he's talking about is a wholesale takeover of Ukraine. So, uh, you know, President Trump's comments, uh, my sense is, you know, because he's a deal maker, that's immediately where his mind goes. But I don't think the long term outcome, if he had done that, would be anything worth celebrating. Right. And, and by the way, people should know that when uh, the whole Munich agreement, it wasn't all of Czechoslovakia. It was just certain sections of Czechoslovakia with heavy German population, the Sudetenland, in, in fact. Um, uh, Elon, there's also this problem of Iran and Iran making a new China-brokered deal with Saudi Arabia. Uh, is this a uh, direct threat undermining uh, Israeli priorities and security? Well, it certainly uh, it has the sort of the makings of that, and it certainly already is very clear that this is a huge diplomatic black eye for Washington, because what you've seen is uh, a China that just a few years ago was very limited in terms of its regional interests in the Middle East and North Africa, and just you know focusing on energy, focusing on arms sales, has moved into the region in a really substantial strategic way, and as it has done so, it has supplanted the United States as a key uh, arbiter of security and, and sort of a key diplomatic uh, sort of mediator for countries in the region, right? That's a testament to the fact that the Biden administration is continuing this pattern of retraction from the Middle East. But it's also enormously problematic because a lot of things are bound up in the old order, uh, in the fact that Israel could count on Saudi Arabia to be antagonistic to Iran's military ambitions and could rely on Riyadh as a strategic ally uh, in the fact that, uh, you know, the everybody like myself, who is a, a big proponent of the Abraham Accords and wants them to get stronger and wider, was expecting the kingdom of Saudi Arabia to be, if not the next entrant, one of the next entrants into those agreements. All of those things now have really sort of been, been flipped on their head by this agreement, right? It positions China as a key arbiter of regional security, regional diplomacy, and it makes it much more speculative that the Saudis are an erstwhile ally in uh, protecting the free world against Iran. Okay, so if can, can you hang with us for another few minutes, uh, Ilan? Of course. Terrific. Of course. Uh, we will come back to the question about, okay, what now? The reports are that Iran is actually very close to the capacity of at least uh, designing a few nuclear bombs. And all it, all it takes, because they're not even that far away from Israel, uh, and Israel has very concentrated population in three big Israeli cities, uh, 
What uh, happens now in terms of what the United States has said repeatedly, which is that an Iranian with a government with nuclear arms is actually a deep threat to our security and to world peace. We'll be right back with Ilan Berman of the uh, Foreign Policy Council, American Foreign Policy Council, coming up. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, very glad to welcome back uh, Ilan Berman, the Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council. And uh, Ilan, for, for you and the listeners, I apologize for my uh, vocal imperfections uh, today and yesterday. I, I have a cold. It's nothing more. I'm not deadly ill. I don't have, uh, uh, to the very best of my knowledge, uh, any form of covid and uh, I'm, I'm all actually feeling better today than yesterday, just to let people know. But, uh, and no, I, I have not been taking any kinds of hormones to lower my voice. It's just a, a product of being a little bit under the weather. Okay, speaking of a little bit under the weather, uh, the Netanyahu administration is facing tremendous divisions in Israel regarding judicial reform. And uh, also tremendous alarm bells regarding the situation with Iran. Iran now allied with Saudi Arabia, which had been developing more constructive relationships with Israel going forward. Do, do you believe that this uh, deal with Iran takes away any possibility that Israel would really attack a nuclear facility in Iran? Well, you know, not necessarily, um, and, and I, I think it, it's uh, sort of it, it, it's proper to set the scene because you're absolutely right. The uh, in Israel, right? All of the officials that I talk to, all of the sort of the commentariat that I read out of Israel suggests that the Israeli timeline on Iran is moving way up, um, and it's moving way up uh, effectively for two reasons. Uh, one is that you know Iran is very clearly making significant progress on uh, its nuclear program, on the maturity of the nuclear program. And the number three uh, in the Biden administration's Pentagon team, Colin Call, the undersecretary of defense for policy, recently testified um, in Congress. And, you know, he made this bombshell statement where when he said um, Iran uh, has enough uh, fissile material um, to make, uh, you know, if it decides to do so, to make a bomb in roughly two weeks, in 12 days. Um, this is, I mean, frankly, this is a huge, huge testament to the failure of the Biden administration's Iran policy. Uh, I know it's fashionable for the folks in the White House to blame the Trump administration for everything relating to Iran. But what we've effectively done for two years has been fritter away this timeline as Iran has uh, improved on its nuclear program. And the aggregate result, uh, because we're not enforcing sanctions, because we're not really holding the Iranians to account, because we're not doing anything meaningful to curtail the nuclear program, is that they're much, much closer. And this is something the Israelis are, uh, are watching, and they're watching with alarm. Uh, the second is uh, the lash-up between Iran and Russia, because as part of this uh, military, burgeoning military partnership that you see between Moscow and Tehran, uh, Russia 
Uh, Iran is providing Russia with drones to use uh, against uh, Ukrainian population centers. Um, and Russia, in return, is considering delivering air defense systems to the Islamic Republic. This is significant because the deployment of Russian air defenses is going to make uh, it much, much harder to target the Iranian nuclear complex, right? They're going to be installed around Iranian nuclear facilities, right? So that one-two punch of a, of a loudly ticking clock and of Iran uh, about to be defended even more is really sharpening the minds of policymakers in Jerusalem. You know, for a long time, they were willing to take, you know, to backbench the American discussion on what to do about Iran, right, to take a, take a back seat. Um, I, I think increasingly they're understanding that there's not a serious American policy to deal with the Iranian nuclear threat, and they're going to have to go it alone. What should be the serious American policy that we have uh, lacking right now? Well, I, you can sort of uh, slice and dice it, I think, uh, a number of different ways. But um, the, uh, to me, the sort of the, the central failing that you see on the part of the Biden administration is that what we had done in terms of enacting economic uh, pressure on a very broad basis under the Trump administration, the, the maximum pressure policy, um, had succeeded in drawing down Iran's hard currency reserves by something like 92 percent. And the less money Iran has uh, available, the less money it has to spend on its nuclear endeavors. It's pretty simple math. Um, I would actually go beyond that. I would reimpose maximum uh, pressure, but I would also enact you know, much more support for what's happening within Iran, because Iran, although most of the press is not reporting this, Iran is in the throes of very, very substantial domestic unrest. And it's unrest that's persisted uh, despite, uh, you know, the inattention of the West and despite the fact that the Iranian regime has been remarkably brutal in trying to suppress it. Right. There's systemic, serious systemic problems that are uh, that exist within the Islamic Republic. And I think our job has to be not only to neuter the Islamic Republic, but to try to uh, exacerbate those cleavages as much as possible uh, under the understanding that the Iran that currently exists is a threat to international peace and security. Does the uh, the idea of hatred for Israel or hatred for the United States, the great Satan, and I know Israel is viewed as the little Satan, right. but does, does hatred for the great or the little Satan unite uh, Iranians and somehow lead them to put aside the differences that are so visible in the streets and the universities and businesses in Iran? So I, I would argue that uh, not nearly as much as you think, because while it's, uh, it's a very convenient rhetorical ploy for the regime to use to uh, sort of rally folks around the flag, you know, the death to America, the death to Israel chants that you see at these rallies, what you actually see on the ground within Iran is a pretty remarkable rejection of the current system. Uh, back in 2009, when, when the, the so-called Green Movement broke out, this was really a movement not about regime change, but a movement about behavior modification. The people that came out on the streets, they didn't like the way the regime was behaving, and they were trying to moderate it from within. The protests that you see now are totally different. It's about a rejection of the clerical system of government. It's about desire for democracy. It's about a desire to be free from religious strictures on dress and belief and, and uh, everything in between. So what you see is, is a real fundamental, fundamental rupture in the making that's taking place within Iran, and we're just sitting on the sidelines. The supreme leader of Iran, uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei, is uh, just recovering, I believe, for treatment for cancer. Uh, 
He is 86, 87. Um, what, uh, what does the future bring? Well, th- this is really, uh, to me, the $64,000 question, because uh, where Iran goes from here uh, is almost independent of what we do. Obviously, uh, we can enact policies that can shape Iran's future, but Iran's going to look very different in just a few years, even if we don't do anything. Um, and all of the scenarios uh, you know, that uh, can evolve absent a serious American policy have a lot to do with regime consolidation. The regime can get more serious and, and, and more competent in managing its finances, in, in uh, you know, liberalize slightly domestically and mollify at least part of the people that are out on the streets currently. You can have you can see a technocratic takeover where the bureaucrats take charge and they tone down the religious rhetoric. Or you could see the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the uh, you know, the true deep state within Iran that controls over a third of the national economy, uh, take over. And, and really, you know, Iran could become. Uh, in very short order, a military dictatorship. Um, all of those scenarios are possible, uh, and it, they're possible because what you have now is a situation where the man in charge is very old, he's very infirm, and he's going to pass from the political scene without creating a structure of government that endures beyond him. Hey, yeah, and and again, we have the... I know that when people talk about the future of the Palestinian Authority, there's also the question is af, after Abu Mazen... Mahmoud Abbas, who is also 87 and has also been battling bad health, uh, what what happens there? And 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 by the way, do you think there's possibility for maybe a, a fresh approach? Uh, that probably is a matter for discussion next time. Uh, we can uh, take a look. You can take a look at a number of the recent pieces by Ilan Berman, which are very much worth reading and very pertinent to some of the political issues that are raised today and some of the foreign policy issues that America has to confront. I'd go to our website to michaelmedved.com. And meanwhile, we have all kinds of other issues here in the United States, particularly issues of potential financial collapse. Uh, Everybody's heard about what would happen to the U.S. economy and what would happen to jobs and everything else if we default, if we don't raise the debt ceiling in time to prevent the idea of an American default. And meanwhile, we have failing banks already. We'll be speaking with Peter Coy of the New York Times on the bank collapses and what to expect next and how to understand the problems at Silicon Valley uh, Bank and the uh, interest rates that have risen so quickly that some banks simply can't keep up. We will get to that and more about the future of the economy for this greatest nation on God's green earth. For special discounts on history shows, check out MedvidHistoryStore.com. For the getaway of your dreams,